This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 61. Coming up on today's show, virus politics, gas prices, and Milo's new book. All that and more on the way. No talking points. No spin. It's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Hello and welcome to Still Standing. This is Michael Caputo. Thanks for listening in. I really appreciate it. A lot is going down as usual. Uh, Never a dull moment in Trump uh, America. And now with this coronavirus... It's in. I think it's affecting all of us now in the states. We watched it from afar as China cracked down on it, and then we watched as Italy uh, fell into despair, uh, and uh, and now we're seeing a it, uptick here in the United States. There's been a lot of uh, attempts out there to point fingers and blame uh, the uh, President Trump for one thing, uh, also to you know since we see the economy melting down as well. You know, seven to eight uh, percent losses on the on the different stock indices on a daily basis. We're seeing uh, automatic measures triggered where they stop trading. Uh, I think it was at nine thirty nine this morning, and just after the markets opened, they had to stop it because it dropped seven to eight percent almost immediately. So there's a good amount of damage being done by the coronavirus. Although uh, anyone will tell you uh, that the drop in the market was also attributable to the uh, to the gas wars between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Uh, I'm going to talk about that after the the break here. I'm going to focus on the coronavirus part of this now. Um, I'm not an expert in the coronavirus. Of course, I don't have any idea of microbiology or, or pestilence. Um, I'm as much of a, an expert in this as I am in uh, cancer or other medical problems, but I do listen. Uh, and I do believe that this is a serious problem. I believe our country has many serious problems. This is one of them. It's also one that's immediately pressing. Um, I came to me kind of closely. Uh, I have a, a, you know, a lot of us heard as this thing started rolling out in the last 10 days that people, you know, conservatives who attended a conference in Washington, the Conservative Political Action Conference, it's kind of the Woodstock for the right wing in America. That attendees there, uh, many of them had encountered someone who later tested positive for the coronavirus. Turns out it was a physician. Uh, undoubtedly, this man treated someone with coronavirus and didn't know he had it when he came to Washington. And he was at CPAC uh, shaking hands in the VIP room, in the green room, for those of us, uh, for those who were going on the stage. I did not go to the green room. Um, I was. Uh, speaking at CPAC, I was a guest speaker. I spoke at a, you know, a breakout room uh, in the main hall where the president spoke, and big speakers would address the crowd. There were hundreds upon hundreds of people in attendance. I think probably thousands could fit into that room at the Gaylord Hotel, uh, the place where I had my engagement. I was on a panel on intellectual property rights and how the deep state is uh, is basically killing intellectual property rights. Um, that was in a breakout room, not nowhere near the green room where everybody got sick. And I think it was actually the day before everybody in, encountered this infected person. 
Um, I had not been to CPAC in a lot of years. My last podcast, I talked about it a little bit. A very impressive operation. Uh, very well managed. I, uh, I really like Matt Schlapp, uh, the head of CPAC, uh, head of the ACU. Really great guy. And boy, what he has done to turn that into, I mean, quite frankly, a moneymaker, of course. But it's also turned into a place where ideas are imparted by the highest level speakers of the conservative movement. And people come from all over the country. It's typically a very young-oriented group. I first started going there when I was in my early 20s. It seemed to me like an early 20s kind of thing. I had a good time there, but on my way out on Friday, because I only came in Wednesday night late, I went out for a drink by myself Wednesday night, came back, worked in the morning on Thursday, and then went downstairs and did a trip up and down Radio Road. That's the the media area uh, for CPAC, where you, all the, the radio talk show hosts and podcast hosts, the Dan Bonginos and Larry O'Connors of the world, Kurt Schlichter, great guy, Kurt Schlichter, had a chance to meet him. What a hell of a guy he is. Uh, he was actually uh, interviewed me on uh, as a, uh, 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 a fill-in host on a radio show, up and down uh, Radio Row a couple times, and then I, uh, you know, Friday uh, after I woke up, had breakfast. I split. Uh, I left for the day. I had an evening flight home. I decided to go visit some friends. And uh, as I was walking out, I walked in and I saw Raheem Kassan. I don't know if you know Raheem Kassan. He is a uh, uh, a communicator on the conservative side of things, not a journalist. He's quick to tell you that, but a, a podcaster extraordinaire, a, a, a social media uh, animal. I mean, he's out, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, been uh, swinging a bat for President Trump for a long, long time. One of the co-hosts of uh, Steve Bannon's War Room podcast, which is ex- incredibly successful and will be an important part of the Trump victory. Raheem, I, I had never met him before, but we had spoken, you know, in direct message stuff on social media. A lot of people I haven't met in the kind of new conservative movement. I only recently met uh, uh, Jack Posobiec, someone I like a lot. I've followed and respect a lot. Uh, he's on One American News. I have not met guys like Mike Cernovich, Raheem Kassam. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet him. He was coming in as I was going out. And... Uh, a lot of these guys are named, you know, they're called alt-right. And I actually met uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. I'm going to talk about him as well on this podcast a little bit later. But I met him during the Stone trial. What a pleasure that was. Um, uh, I know people don't like Milo for whatever reasons. I didn't really pay much attention to it. You know, after just meeting him, had lunch with some friends at a nice restaurant near the courthouse where Roger was being on, was on trial. I really liked him. Uh, uh Really interesting guy. Um, controversial. I, I like controversy. I, uh, anybody who would be close friends with Roger Stone would probably find Milo interesting. Uh, so I find myself in those crosshairs. Very interesting cat. Got to meet him. He was not at CPAC. I don't think uh, Milo, I think he's on the outs of the CPAC crowd. They call it conservative ink. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm starting to meet these guys, interesting guys, uh, and men and women. Uh, I was hoping to meet... Others at CPAC, like uh, Tracy Beans, who uh, runs Uncovered DC, very cool uh, independent journalist. But I met Raheem on the way out, and he, we were, you know, exchanging pleasantries and talking about his podcast, shook hands. You know, uh, he was clearly on his way in. I was carrying my bag on my way out. I think we spoke for a minute, maybe a minute and 30 seconds. So I left, hung out with my friends, had some drinks before I hit my flight, went home. Uh, it was a Friday. And after Raheem went in, um, 
he shook hands with this character, this physician who was uh, infected with the coronavirus. Or anyway, shook his hand, whatever, interacted with him, um, and found and he somehow found out who this person was. I never have found out. I think uh, CPAC is you know was wrestling with the idea of do we tell who do we tell this guy's name? Uh, you know, I think they figured out that I never went to the area where this guy was. So therefore, no reason to tell me his name. Uh, Matt slaps people. I, I sent a question to them through their website, which those things never get answered, as you know. Those website forms, contact us forms. I, you know, I could have called Matt, I spec, but I just figured I'd go through the regular channels because they must have been getting buried. They were classifying these questions and responding in kind. And I got a very clear email. Uh, uh, but when he uh, figured out that he had encountered this uh, coronavirus uh, victim, I guess. Uh, Raheem was started uh, trying to communicate with CPAC. Apparently, ran into some difficulties. I don't know. I don't really care. Uh, I, but uh, Raheem was tweeting about his symptoms, about the difficulty he was having, difficulty he was having trying to find out information uh, about the difficulty he was having getting a test. Uh, he was still in D.C., wasn't having much luck getting through to the D.C. government. Uh, he was told to call the Department of Health because his doctor, apparently, he doesn't live in D.C. His doctor is back home, wherever that is. And uh, I'm reading his tweets like I always do. There are people on Twitter I follow very closely. And I'm reading through it. And after I'm reading through it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, Raheem was really, well, this is, I hope he gets a test, man. It's like, yeah, he sounds like he's got the flu for sure. But those symptoms sound yeah, it sounds like, you know, the flu every year that my kids bring home from school. But, God, I hope he's okay. And then I'm like, holy crap, I I actually spent time with Raheem. I, I, am I in for it? Uh, you know, am I coming down with coronavirus? Do I need to go get a test? So I naturally hit CPAC with a question via their, their contact us form. And, and I reached out to Raheem. And I realized without bothering him, he was clearly dealing with something else, I mean, a whole other level of concern for himself and, you know, for people around him. Um, I started thinking about this thing and myself and the fact that I'd been home for, what, 10 days, 11 days, certainly had no symptoms of flu, but I'm, I'm coming to understand that symptoms aren't necessarily pronounced uh, in people that have the coronavirus. In fact, there are people who just carry it, come down with a little bit of a sniffle you know, it feels like, you know, what happens to everyone in cold weather? So I'm looking around. I sort of taking a closer look at this whole coronavirus thing. What does it mean for my family? And what does it mean? Look, I have a 70-year-old, a 5-year-old. I also have an eight, uh, soon-to-be 18-year-old in boarding school, not far away. A boarding school, by the way, that is, uh, I think, majority Chinese. Yeah, I mean, uh, mainland China uh, uh, high school students or, you know, hundreds of thousands of them in private schools, boarding schools all across America. And the one my daughter goes to um, has a lot of uh, uh, Chinese students. Uh, what does it mean to us? I mean, come to find out that young kids five to seven years old are, uh, you know, tend to, if they get it, they just kind of carry it and they get through it and they don't get sick. But elderly people uh, with underlying issues, um, they have, you know, they die from it. Now, I'll tell you, I mean, my parents are elderly. At 58 years old, of course, I have parents in their 80s, right? And uh, my my father, my stepfather, my mother's husband uh, is ill and 
uh, we, 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 we're concerned about him. My father is oh, elderly, but in very good shape. My mother, I think she probably has underlying health issues, but pretty healthy, right? Uh, very much concerned about my, my stepfather, who I've become close to in recent years. Um, I want to make sure that he's healthy. So I'm starting to take a look at this stuff a little bit more personally, knowing that my five and seven-year-old are probably going to be fine. My wife, who's much younger than me, probably going to be fine. My daughter, 18-year-old, is going to be fine. Um, do I need to go get tested? I actually started getting telephone calls from reporters who saw me at CPAC and said, Caputo, were you behind, you know, in the green room, you know, with the president or with whatever speakers were speaking? Do you have to self-quarantine? So I'm looking at this a little differently now. I'm through that phase where I was concerned about our specific well-being because my potential exposure at CPAC, I know I wasn't exposed, don't need to be tested. But now I have a lingering concern about coronavirus in my family. You know, I've, I'm not a prepper. I'm a guy after three years of the Russia investigations that doesn't believe our government. Uh, and that, you know, I'm very skeptical about the national security agencies. And, you know, uh, I'll admit I got a bug out bag in my, uh, in my safe. Um, I'm not, I don't have tins of food that'll last 80 days, but I know where to get it. And I got friends that do. So I, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit more of a doubting Thomas than most, but I, I, I think coronavirus is a problem. I think it's one that our president will beat. I think if the Democrats can just see past their politics and work with the Republicans, for example, why at this the recording of this uh, podcast are the Democrats resisting uh, keeping the House in session while they're dealing with important legislation? They were actually going to go on break without passing uh, important legislation to fund some of the programs the president wants to put in place. I think the Democrats were going on break because they could, they they had an idea for the bill that uh, catered to some of their favorite you know progressive uh, uh, you know uh, policies. Uh, the Senate didn't want to you know rubber stamp uh, a lurch to the left uh, in the, in the disguise of a coronavirus emergency package. And the president wasn't going to sign it. But in the meantime, those negotiations have to take place in the House. These, yeah, we can't get what we want. We're going home. Maybe by the time I get off the microphone, they've changed their mind. That is the debate I see today on uh, in Capitol Hill. But here's the problem I have. Here's the concern I have. And it's one that, frankly, all of us should have. I, And I've said this over and over on Twitter uh, trying to see how, you know, trying to float the idea, see what kind of traction it gets, see what people respond. Here's, here's my concern, okay? And, and it's a legit concern. The Democrats are now seeing a potential path to victory through the president's failure, if there is one, to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. They see a path to the presidency probably much wider than the little tiny footpath they had with Joe Biden. And coronavirus actually kind of conveys to the Democrats. Let me tell you why. Um, and why I think that. Uh, first of all, um, let's just look at uh, campaign tactics for one, okay? Um, the rallies. There's a discussion now among uh, smart people that these rallies may be, you know, you know, may, may, you know, may go by the wayside. 
you know, President Trump, you know, rallies are really important to the Trump campaign. If they cancel them, I'd worry about losing them uh, because I think that would tilt a bit into Biden's advantage. Of course, the the president is uniquely energized uh, by these events, and it's a vital voter contact platform. You know, the president just feeds off of that crowd. You got to believe it when you see him. You know, I mean, I've talked to him after these rallies during the campaign. I know people who are seeing him after that. He is as energized as ever before. He comes out of these campaign rallies, bliss, you know, just bursting with ideas on what to do next. You know, messages winnowed down by applause lines. You know, all of the things that, that a candidate needs to do uh, to think through a message and what's going to win, what most candidates do in, uh, you know, focus groups and polling research, the president does in crowds of 30,000, right? He gets uniquely energized by this. And, they, you know, this voter contact information they get from these events they take because everybody who goes has to give all their information because they're going to be standing in front of the leader of the free world. They have to give them all kinds of information for identification. And in that identification information for security purposes, Brad Parscale, who's the campaign chairman, comes from a data background, asks important questions. If you want to come in, you got to tell them. Are you a Democrat or Republican? You know, have you voted before? You know, you know, address, telephone, you know, and, and important voter data. And every single time the president has one of these events, he gets between 10 and 30,000 new files on his voter contact uh, database. That's incredibly important. At a time right now, of course, the, the Trump campaign wants more rallies, more. They don't want less, they want more. And at, you know, right now, the Biden campaign, if you're looking at the way that he's behaving on the campaign trail, he's yelling at voters, he's swearing at them, he's making terrible uh, verbal gaffes in public speeches, sometimes doesn't look like he even knows where he is. While the Trump camp wants more rallies, uh, it seems to be a time when Biden, who is kind of faltering, would benefit from less public exposure. So we get rid of rallies. Biden's going to, oh, we can't have that, can't do this, no more this, no more that. Smaller events, you know, 10 people at a time. You know, Joe's great in the kitchen, in the in the living room. We're going to do, you know, retail politics, no mass scale rallies. Um, and the president doesn't do small events. He wins on big events. So from a technical perspective, also, it's important to, to understand that that Pascal's team they they leverage the date you know the voter data they get out of these rallies look no other campaign in history so it's incredibly valuable stuff more valuable in Brad Pascal's hands than anybody else's hands more dangerous in Brad's hands than anybody else's hands in politics now if you lose rallies uh, Pascal loses the flow of incoming voter data that he really needs to win. Now, of course, the Trump campaign has been doing these rallies now for four years, and their voter database is its the most effective in the world. The Democrats, who are bifurcated still, balkanized over competing campaign uh, teams, uh, they each have their own little slices of data, voter data. They're not going to combine them all over at the DNC. These these some of these campaigns really hate each other. If you endorse Biden, like most of them have, you may have to cut a deal to give them your voter data. 
uh, they may have already even shared it through the common database of the D- Democratic National Committee. But I can promise you, after a balkanized uh, 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 primary with dozens of candidates, they're not going to have the database that uh, that the Trump campaign has. So while the Trump campaign loses this opportunity to get data, a constant flow of data that they will use better than any Democrat uses it, they also are in a pretty good position because if campaign rallies are canceled, they're going to have to rely on digital campaigning for a while. It's the truth. The president will probably do some small group stuff, but not much. Uh, he's not going to be out there doing uh, you know, the retail campaigning that uh, people who are involved in an active primary like Bernie and Biden are. And uh, uh, so, so the, the, the president's team is actually more well-positioned to campaign digitally because they have the best data of any campaign. Uh, they can spend more time and money on that and keep the ball in the air on that. I think by the time of the Democratic Convention, we'll be past all this stuff. Democratic Convention is mid-July. Probably long before that, you know, influenza bugs tend to disappear with the with the onset of summer. But... You know, by the time the real campaigning starts in, in vigor and in 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 enthusiasm, it's it's going to be July. But until then, if Biden stays home, we don't have to see we don't get to see his mistakes. And if Trump stays home, uh, he's stuck campaigning digitally. It's not going to be a wash. I think that the end of rallies actually conveys to the Democrats, conveys to Biden. So that's that's a bit tough. But here's what's even more difficult for me to talk about. I've been saying this on Twitter, like I said, and and I want I've been trying to figure out what you know what the reaction will be to my to this message. Uh, and I'm going to spread it out a little bit to you, okay? Uh, because some people are really offended by this, and well, get over it. <laughs> but uh, so if if the Democrats are counting on this new strategy to defeat Donald Trump. That means hanging the coronavirus around the president's neck so that they can gain, oh, the president can't be trusted. He can't handle a crisis. We need you know, a steady hand like Joe Biden's hand who has experience in government in order to, uh, to win this problem, to defeat this problem with the virus, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a great example of why the president shouldn't be uh, President of the United States is how he's handled the Wuhan virus, right? I can see that. But, but what is behind that strategy? What has to happen for the president to lose in this new democratic strategy? It's very, very clear they're counting on two things. Fatalities, of course. Fatalities. Because the more people that die, the more uh, personal um, tragedy there is. And that's emotional, and it gives Democrats a chance to harvest, let's just say, uh, uh, waning enthusiasm in the president. A lot of people die. Um, uh, the Democrats win. Uh, the second thing is uh, the Democrats are, have been hobbled, really hobbled, by the president's strong economy. Uh, of course, you know, we see in history that uh, presidents, Republican and Democrat, who are presiding over a strong economy are typically 
are reelected. Of course, uh, you know, why make a change if you're making money? If your family's doing well, you're saving money, you're paying your bills and you don't have a huge problem with it all. Um, from my, you know, from anybody's perspective, why would you make a change? Why would you make a change? So the Democrats have been seeing it's a real problem to actually puncture this Trump juggernaut because the economy is strong. So they need, with a weakened economy, which is happening with coronavirus and the, uh, the gas wars, um, well, then, the, you know, the weaker the economy, the more, more chance there is for, for uh, the Democrats to win. So it's a two, cha- you know, the coronavirus slash oil wars are dragging the economy down and the coronavirus mismanagement, uh, as long as they can paint it as mismanagement, um, uh, those two things will drag the president down. So just how bad does it have to get in order for this new democratic strategy to to work? I mean, how bad does it got to get? I mean, let's let's just be honest. If people have to die and the and the the uh, the economy has to tank, how many people have to die and how bad does the economy have to get in order for the Democrats to win? I, I think most people agree that as things were last week, Joe Biden was looking bad before coronavirus last month, let's say, looked like it was going to tank the country's economy. I would say most people said that the economy, the president, and he's going to walk right over Biden. Everybody, even on the Democrat side, they were talking about how Biden couldn't win. A lot of people, not everybody, of course. They're all united behind Biden. And and as soon as the coronavirus hit, you saw the Democrats and the conjugal media go after Trump on it. You're doing everything wrong. First, they complained that he canceled all flights from China. And then they, because they, 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 oh, that's just too much. You're using the economy, you know, using this virus in a trade war. You can't do that. And now they're saying that he, 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 you know, contained the virus too late. We can't even contain it anymore. We just have to mitigate the damp, you know, the effects, right? So they were talking the economy down, uh, speaking ill of the president, blaming him, predicting calamity in order for the, the economy to tank. So my question naturally is, how many have to die for the Democrats to win? And how, man, how much money, how, how much does our economy have to collapse, that's a legit question. Since this is your new strategy, first of all, Democrats will not admit that's their strategy. We know that's their strategy. And using the crashed economy and the response to the coronavirus in order to defeat the president because they got nothing else. They've done nothing. They have no agenda. They have no legislation sitting on the president's desk that anybody cares about because they've done nothing but try to remove the president from his office. So for the Democrat, the Democrats' 2020 strategy to work, do 100,000 Americans have to die? Is that the number? I mean, is it 100,000? Is it 200,000? How many have to die? I, I, I think it's a legit question. Uh, you're not going to get a Democrat to admit that, they're, um, that they have to... Uh, that people got to die in order for them to win. They're not going to admit it, but it's not a rhetorical question. It really is a question. It's not, it's not a, I'm not trying to be a smart ass. How many people have to die? Now there is, I I've read of a lot of you as you have, um, 
about what may happen, what could happen. You know, uh, I read a, I guess, a Vox, an interview with a uh, an expert uh, named Amesh Adalja. Amesh Adalja, and uh, they're like, well, what's the worst case scenario under a coronavirus? What's the worst case scenario? Um, well, what is that? I think if you look at things. Um, you know, she was being interviewed by a guy named Sean Illing, and he and he said, you know, to be clear, a one percent case fatality ratio sounds like a low number. She thinks that one percent is is the worst case scenario. Um, with a lot of critically ill patients, he says, but we're talking about a staggering number of casualties here in one percent. And she said, yes, it's it's substantially higher than really severe flu, uh, ten times higher. She says. And when asked what that means exactly, um, she comes up with the number 800,000 deaths. Just under a million deaths from coronavirus. Um, that's the worst case scenario. Now, my question, is it 100,000 deaths? Can, can, is that effective enough for a Democrat? Or do they need the worst case? Or do we need a nearly a million Americans to die in order for the Democrats to win? I want to know what that – where is the breaking point? What, what time – at what number of dead people do the Democrats actually start profiting from it? Is it 200,000? I think it's a legit question. The other question is how bad does the economy have to be? How, how much do they have to tank it in order for it to start breaking toward the Democrats, right? We see them talking down the economy until it does bust – um, of course, it leans a lot more toward the gas uh, uh, war between Russia and uh, the Saudi Arabia. We'll talk about that after the break. But how much is it a trillion dollars? In, is it trillions? It isn't billions. Uh, billions Americans. If a billions of dollars in the American economy was destroyed, that's we won't even feel it. It's a blip. Uh, I got to tell you also, uh, as somebody who's life was wiped out by the Mueller investigation. I don't have any money in the market. What I'm looking at, <laughs> I'm not destroyed by that. I have a little bit money left in the market. You know, I kind of cashed out my retirement to pay for, you know, uh, you know, lots of expenses during the Russian investigation. I don't really have anything in the market to speak of. I don't know, whatever stuff I just left in there, but it's, I never expect to see anything out of it. I probably lost, you know, 15, 20% of its value. Doesn't, not enough to really cry over. How much of your retirement has to disappear in order for the Democrats to win? Does your job have to disappear in order for the Democrats to win? Can they actually keep the coronavirus concern ball in the air enough to drive enough destruction of our economy for them to win? I mean, how much does our economy have to die and how many Americans have to die for these Democrats to get what they want? I don't believe they brought the Wuhan virus to America to win. But just like uh, you heard the Obama White House say oftentimes, um, Rahm Emanuel in particular, the former chief of staff, never let a crisis go by Without leveraging it. What's the line? Uh, whatever. Rahi. Uh, what was it? 
Um, gosh, anybody listening here, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, every crisis has a silver lining. Whatever it was, use the crisis. Use the crisis. I think we've seen that the Obama White House is still in many ways steering the Democratic Party strategy. People who were important in the Democratic Party from the Obama White House are still behind the scenes. Barack Obama still lives in Washington. Never let a good crisis go to waste. That's what he said. Never let a crisis go to waste. They're taking this crisis. They're going to see just how many people have to die and just how many retirements have to be destroyed in order for them to get the White House back. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is no crisis that is too deadly, too expensive for the Democrats to actually not use it. How many people have to die for the Democrats to win? I'm going to take a quick break, get a drink of water, be right back right here on Still Standing. That's stillstandingpodcast.com. Go to stillstandingpodcast.com and sign up for email updates. Uh, also, don't forget my book, The Ukraine Hoax. The Ukraine Hoax is up at uh, Amazon. If you want to know why the president was right to demand investigations of the Bidens and the Ukrainian government's interference in our 2016 election, my book, The Ukraine Hoax, explains it all to you. You're going to need to know this when Joe Biden is the candidate. All right, I'll be right back after these messages. Still standing, we'll be right back. Michael Caputo. Welcome back to Still Standing. Michael Caputo here. Thanks a lot for sticking around. Remember, stillstandingpodcast.com. That's where you get emails, updates. You can sign up for email updates for Still Standing Podcast. Of course, you can catch us on any one of the platforms, Stitcher, iTunes, radio.com. I'm affiliated with Entercom, a great company. And uh, by the way, I really want to thank everybody who's donated in order to help support Still standing. Uh, most people do it over Patreon. Thanks for the checks in the mail. We like those too. But the Patreon pledges are really, really helpful. Uh, we call everybody who donates to us on Patreon.com, Still Standings page. We call them our executive producers. Uh, John Seifert, Henry Wotazic, thank you guys. Susan Havey, Sonia Carlin, Thomas Fulton, Samantha Lynn, our executive producers are all extremely helpful. They give us ideas. They tell us what, what they're thinking provide a little bit of funding. Uh, it's not cheap to do this. Uh, if I knew a lot more about technology, maybe I wouldn't need executive producers like uh, Brian Pizdursky, Jack Bromwich, Jordan Gostomsky, Julie, Susan Stevens, Patty Freeling, our executive producer, Bill Grant, Mark Berry, Gary Stokes, Brent Sheehan, uh, Brian Mangus, Catherine Barzicki, thank you, Catherine, uh, Frank Butry, Scott McRae, Stephen Flaminio, hey, Stephen, and Denise Dijon, thank you, Denise, you and your husband have always been uh, so supportive of everything I do. Uh, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I don't know how many people among our Patreon supporters, among our executive producers, are invested in the stock market. I, I suspect some of you are. There are some very successful people I know on that list. And anybody who's deeply invested in there, or even, you know, moderately invested in their 401k or whatever, you're all in the market. We're all watching the values of our money go down. But I got to tell you, 
the oil price crash, we're expected to see gas prices go down from just below three bucks uh, to below two bucks. I, I don't know about you, but that is actually something that impacts my family. I mean, the United States has become a, a net uh, exporting petro state, but we're not Nigeria or Iran or you know China, India, Japan. I don't know. China, India, and Japan, like for example, have very few oil resources. They're not making money, losing money on this big fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia. I don't know if you know much about that fight, but Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, decided to let a deal that he struck with the Saudi Arabians uh, to keep production low because of some disagreement between the Saudi crown prince and himself. Uh, he let that deal expire. And subsequently, MBS started a price war, which cost each country probably $100 million a day. You know, U.S. shale oil companies, uh, we're also going to, they're going to have problems. Uh, I don't think it's going to be $100 million a day, but it's similar. I mean, we've put a lot more into the industry. We're much more powerful in the oil and gas industry than we used to be. Uh, but uh, we're not a petro state. We're more diverse economy. Russia and and you know and in reverse is is uh, uh, you know not a I mean, they're they are a petro state. But, but when it comes down to it, um, Saudi Arabia has enough cash that they can weather this storm. Russia, they have something like six hundred fifty billion dollars in reserves. They they're. they're they actually have a balanced budget. In fact, they they have a, a, a budget uh, surplus in Russia because of the sanctions, an unintentional impact of Western sanction, American sanctions in place on Russia for a decade now, um, is that they've bolted their economy down. They've learned to work with uh, you know domestic capital. Uh, they've learned to work with an oil price that isn't at its maximum. When the oil price is $100 a barrel, Russia is printing money. When it goes down to $20 a barrel, it used to be that Russia would relent. But Russia has now got their economy so streamlined that with $20 a barrel, they can handle it, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have $650 million, billion in reserves, maybe even more, right? We don't know. They maybe have less room, less elbow room to get through this, but they have plenty of money, right? Um, so they're going to keep the fight going. And then, all, you know, then you get to places like Iran, who is, you know, they're a poverty state making almost all their money from gas and oil. Iran is going to be crushed by this. And they're Saudi Arabia's big rival. You can understand uh, as a, uh, you know, collateral damage, Saudi Arabia doesn't give a damn. Russia might care a little bit more than Saudi Arabia, but, you know, in the end, they don't give a damn. So this is going to go on for a while. And I got to tell you, um, we're going to see $2 a gallon. Now, my family, we spend a great deal of money on gas. My wife goes back and forth to Buffalo every day or so. I, you know, I'm a pretty local guy here in my little village outside of Buffalo. I walk to work, walk home. I walk everywhere. We've gotten rid of our second car. We don't use it. I'm a walker. But we spend a significant amount of money on 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 fuel. You, most Americans do, and we're going to dip below two dollars a gallon. I mean, I think um, we are something like two thirty six now. We are upwards of two eighties. Takes a little while for this decrease in price 
to pop, but it's going to happen soon. Uh, breaking below $2 is going to be an interesting place because a lot of the people who care about every single drop of gas that goes in their tank, a lot of those people aren't deeply invested in the stock market. We're going to see the dichotomy of this uh, American economy. Um, and from my perspective, I guess oil prices cratered 20% at the beginning part of this week like after the Saudis slashed their prices over the weekend. They say crude oil futures went down like almost 50%. Crazy, right? But when I pull up to the, to the uh, gas station around the corner from my house and it's below two bucks, the extra money in my pocket, I don't know. I obviously, a lot of the market crashes got to do with this. Um, uh, also the, the coronavirus, the disruption of supplies, etc. cetera. Uh, but I, I just, you know, whenever people wring their hands over oil prices dropping down, all I think about is a weakened uh, uh, Russia and, a, and a cheaper gas in my tank. Well, this time around, Russia's not going to be so weak because we've, we've taught them how to be strong. Uh, with our vaunted uh, sanctions, stupid policy. Um, but I, I don't know about you. I, I'm, I've got to tell you something. If we're going to crush our economy in order to elect the Democrats, if we're going to kill hundreds of thousands of people in order to elect the Democrats, um, I, I'm not game. And from my perspective... Uh, as long as the coronavirus is handled, the gas price can stay low. I don't care. I don't care. I know, you know, the shale oil areas in the United States, you know, out west, Texas, you know, the offshore guys, the uh, the, the 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 fracking guys in Colorado, Pennsylvania, elsewhere, their 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 business economies are going to change very drastically. But give me a coronavirus recovery and a cheap gas price, and I'm fine. <laughs> But I got to tell you, uh, uh, from my perspective, this coronavirus is Donald Trump's opportunity. It is. Um, we had a little rocky start, like most governments do when they, when they, you know, when a hurricane hits, when an earthquake hits. We've seen this happen. It has. It's not unique to the to the Trump administration. Uh, I saw him uh, today, uh, given a a. a, a uh, an address to the nation on this uh, very, I think I said it was last night, somber and uh, straightforward. I was very interested to see that he didn't stray from his script. A bit of a mistake there when they were talking about stopping all trade from Europe, but uh, they followed that up, uh, corrected that mistake. But uh, this is a place where, where Donald Trump can really make a difference. Uh, this is a place where Donald Trump, if if this, you know, you look at the pandemic, you see that it's a flu. It's very, very likely, but not certain, that it'll it'll slow down as as summer comes into play. Uh, and at that point, whether there's a, you know, they talk whether it's going to be a V or a U. If the economy is, you know, tanking because of gas prices and coronavirus, can we just bounce off the bottom and start going up? Do we have a long drag of a recessive, you know, bottom of the U? Is it a V? with an immediate uptick, or a U, where we're going to stay in the trough for a little while. Because if it, it's a V, we may see the economy surging right at the time of 
Labor Day and the beginning of the really truly active campaign period. We got to be, be concerned whether it's a V or a U. And meanwhile, fill your tank. I'm going to be right back after this message. I want to talk to you just for a minute about a new book I read. And remember, it is stillstandingpodcast.com. Michael Caputo will be still right back. Standing. Still Standing will be right back with Michael Caputo. Well, one last quick segment. Thanks for sticking around. A little bit more information today, a little bit more talking. You know, I, I've got to tell you, just like you, when these kinds of things happen, as I'm concerned for my family and, and for my country, I get a little bit more talkative. Of course, the coffee helps, but, um, you know, now I'm in the midst of this. I don't know about you. you. I, I've, I'm, I'm trying to get healthier, uh, not because of the Wuhan virus, but... Um, I just, you know, I, I'm doing this documentary film for One American News on the Ukraine hoax, which is uh, a film about my book, The Ukraine Hoax, which is on Amazon. Uh, I noticed on film uh, as the narrator of The Ukraine Hoax, um, I looked, I looked awful. I looked swollen, fat. Now, I'm a stress eater, so after three years of bogus Russia investigations, I had eaten. Us out of house and home, right? So I started really losing weight. I actually picked up this app, Noom.com, and I'm like, I'm down 29 pounds, which is pretty wild. Um, drinking a lot more coffee, it's become a staple of my diet because there are like two calories. But uh, one of the things I'm doing now that I'm feeling healthier and being healthier, it's actually got me looking at. What's next for our family? Because, you know, when you're 58 like I am, soon to be 58, and uh, you've got young kids, and um, you want to stick around a little while for them, you, you take care of yourself, you know, you make sure you're out of the pre-diabetic range, that, you know, you can treat your your cholesterol with a good diet instead of a pill. I mean, all these things, that I, the goals I want to do, get off the statin, you know, all that stuff. It's all about what's in store for our family. And when you think about the coronavirus and the next election, so much is at stake right now. Um, and we're all totally plugged in. If you're not, you know, I have a friend of mine who lives in the mountains, uh, doesn't even have internet access, doesn't watch television, listen to the radio. He is a blissful po person. I couldn't do that myself, but very blissful. It's been a rough a couple of months for our family uh, watching Roger Stone get prosecuted and then sentenced to 40 months. Roger being a very close friend of mine, I attended every day except one of his trials, Snowden in Buffalo that day. Uh, but I finally got a chance to, at the trial uh, to see a lot of old friends, see Roger's family who I haven't been able to talk to because of a court order. Roger has not been allowed to speak to me, contact me in any way since uh, January of 2019. It's hard for me because Roger was if not my best friend, certainly one of my best friends. And you don't know how much you miss somebody until you're not allowed to talk to them anymore until they die. It kind of feels like Roger has died, except I see him on the news every day. So I feel like, you know, it's a, an interesting loss of a friend, very different. Um, but one thing I saw, one thing that happened to me at the, at the Stone trial is I met for the first time Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, I, Roger had told me that he knew Milo, that he thought highly of Milo. And would uh, speak of Milo, something Milo had said or something that Milo had done in our conversations. 
but I never had an opportunity to meet Milo. Um, Roger has an eclectic crew, and it sounded to me like Roger was counting Milo and his crew. I, I had no idea how close they were. Roger keeps those things kind of close, those cards close to his vest. But I met Milo at Roger's trial, and I found him to be absolutely delightful. I, I'm look, you know, I know people call Milo names. People call me names. I think that they were trying to cancel Milo because they they saw his views as dangerous. Not his views, but his ability to communicate his views. His views aren't all that different from mine. I know he's got some things said some things that are out there. He's a provocateur, agent provocateur. He is, you know, in many ways, an, another Roger Stone in a lot of ways. Um, but I found him delightful. We actually went to lunch with some uh, friends, a friend of mine and her son. And what a what a we laugh the whole time. He spends a lot of time trying to, I don't know, trying to make you smile. And that kind of a personality, I don't know about you, but I, I find that to be refreshing. He's always joking. He, and, you know, obviously when things were getting serious at the trial, he was somber as the rest of us. But at the appropriate times, and, and probably not so appropriate times, he was, he was looking for a laugh. And he gets them because he's smart. But I found out while he, why he was there. He's writing a book about Roger Stone about the stone trial. And I thought, well, first of all, I really wanted to write that book, but I was a wreck. You know, I, I couldn't write that book. Watching my, my friend prosecuted and persecuted and they're, they're trying to kill Roger Stone. I can tell, you can tell if you see what this attorney did to Roger, uh, in this civil suit, bogus civil suit against me and Roger, 25 million were being sued for together. Uh, the the attorney uh, on the other side was uh, took a deposition of Roger, you know, for two full days as he's awaiting uh, being sent to jail. Uh, anybody who would take a man from his family for a bogus lawsuit to depose him for two days is an animal. But you watch Roger in that deposition, and you know, you see they're trying to kill him. You see that they're starting to get to him. You see that he's. He's really being tortured. And then, you know, when you go watch the, the, the trial live, there's no way I was going to write that book. There's no way I was going to write about it at all. Maybe I will here and there. But I was so glad to see that somebody of Milo's level of talent was going to write about it. I didn't know what he was going to do. I was there, saw him there. Uh, I was, saw him there the day of the sentencing. Um... Uh, I couldn't hang around with him much because he was hanging around with Roger and I wasn't allowed to be around Roger. But one day they came in, they were all hung over. I, I was a little jealous because uh, I would have loved to have gotten drunk with my friend Roger. All these guys hanging around, you know, all of them hung over. At 58, I don't do that. At 58, I don't do that very much anymore, but I'd have taken that opportunity to sit and drink with Roger again. But anyway, so I, I you know, haven't spoken to Milo for a little while, and he was really hunkered down, I figured, uh, on this book of his. And the book is out. I, I think it's out on Amazon any day. It's called The Trial of Roger Stone. And um, I'm here to tell you, you got to read it. You got to read it. It is absolutely true. It's I'm, I'm, you know, I got a chance to read an advanced copy. I think you'll, you should really do it if you get a chance. But pick it up. I, I don't think it's going to be expensive. You know, it's more of, it's a book. Um, there are, you know, uh, you know, it's 
it covers the trial and Roger's history and everything completely. And yet it's not 300 pages long. This is, I don't know, old school, they might call it a monograph. Uh, but this is the kind of book that you can read. And when you're done with it, you'll understand everything you need to know about Roger Stone and the situations he's in. And great uh, chapters. Uh, he talks about Stone's rules, uh, which I've lived by them all of my life. I remember being Roger's driver and him, you know, me making a mistake. And Roger would say, Stone's rule number 27, never blah, 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 blah. He had these rules. He's been citing them since I was a kid. And, uh, and that's how Milo opens his book. Roger lives by a unique set of rules. Now, these are rules he forced on all of us. He's actually got a book out called Stone's Rules, which I really recommend if you want to help Roger out. Um, uh, great things about this book, too, which I'll tell you in a second. But uh, it talks about Roger being a very a loving person, someone with a real heart, something that Roger didn't want out there all these years, but he's a very, a very, uh, pleasant person uh, he kind of created and curates this image of being a bad boy but his devotion to animals the things he's done to help people over the years things he's done to help me are significant um and one by one by one amilo goes through this he, he talks about the jury first of all he talks about amy berman jackson the obama judge that stood in, in judgment of roger stone uh, goes through you know 20 pages of her history and you got to read that if you want to understand Amy Berman Jackson talks about the jury that jury as rigged as it was is the reason why Roger Stone has got could get a new trial and certainly deserves a, has a strong appeal um he uh, uh, Milo spends a chapter talking about Steve Bannon uh he's very close to Steve Steve kind of brought him into this life um, and he didn't agree with what Steve said or did at the trial. It's a you could hear uh, the broken heart in what Milo's writing about what he observed with Steve Bannon. Um, and then his final chapter is called "Mr. President." Mr. President, and it's basically a letter to President Trump. And honest to God, this book really ripped my heart out. Uh, it's so. It's so spot on about Roger. Everything he, Milo says. He may not know Roger as long as I do, but he knows Roger as well as I do. And and if you want to know, if you want to understand uh, what is happening to Roger Stone, and and it will be coming up again soon, as you know, Roger is faced with actually going to prison and what the president is going to do. Um, and uh, you know what. He just explains it. You need to know this. You understand. Um, if you understand what's going down with Roger Stone, uh, you, you'll support the uh, the pardon. The president needs to pardon him. He really does. It is just something. Uh, I'm looking for a section in his book, um, which is, uh, uh I think important to read. I want I want to read this to you. The close of his book is so important. I I frankly was really choked up after I read it. The presidential pardon is a little slice of monarchical oversight hidden inside America's constitution. A hint, perhaps, that even the framers did not wholly trust the system of government they were creating. Interesting. 
Its inclusion suggests an implied corollary word of advice to the slippery denizens of the swamp. If you do not want a king, stop abusing the law. Don't you like that? If you do not want a king, stop abusing the law. When something goes wrong, when a citizen lies, violating her oath, and when a judge loses her way, or when, as in this case, both happen at the same time, the president is there to remedy it. It is not only in the president's power to grant forgiveness or pardon the wrong party. It is a moral responsibility and a core function of his office. It's the whole reason he's elected. All this to say, should it not now be obvious? Do something, Mr. President. Do it now. I couldn't agree with Milo Moore. He captures it all, and it's and it's a and it's a good read. You can hear his voice in it. Um, a little controversial here and there. He says some things that are pretty out there, but I love the guy for it. Um, uh, he talks about this juror Tamika Hart. Um, he says she is not honest, and and he's right. Um, lying under oath, as Tamika Hart undeniably did. And as Judge Amy Berman Jackson incontestably permitted, it's the end of the law, and thus, ultimately, the end of the American experiment. Now, I say go do it. Go read, go read Milo's book. It's up on uh, Amazon now. It's called The Trial of Roger Stone. You'll know it because the cover, brilliantly designed, um, has Roger Stone's glasses, his famous round glasses on it. It's by Milo Yiannopoulos, The Trial of Roger Stone. Please go read it. I want everybody to understand why Roger Stone deserves a pardon. Milo lays it out. And honest to God, Mr. President, if you're listening, buy this book just for the last chapter because it's a letter to you. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'll be back earlier next week. I'm sticking around during the coronavirus at home a lot like you are. A lot of my events, my speaking engagements have been canceled. God bless everyone in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, Stay safe. Keep your hands clean. Wash them regular. Um, Stay out of big crowds, except the ones that I invite you to. (laughs) Maybe maybe I can start up my speaking tour again after the coronavirus has passed. Hopefully... uh, The worst will pass through us in the next month or so. Uh, God bless all of you. And remember, um, the president's right in what he's doing. Uh, The president is on target with this virus. Uh, The Republicans, all they want to do is work with the Democrats to get things done. I think we may be seeing some of that now. With the even though the bill that the Democrats put out there to fund some of these projects is off to the left. I think they can reach a compromise. Let's see if they can compromise. Do you think they can? I don't know. So Michael Caputo here for Still Standing. Check us out next week. Thanks a lot. Stillstandingpodcast.com. Have a great week. Have a great week.